I've been wrestling a little bit personally with motives. Just wrestling with why do we do the things that we do? Why do I do the things that I do? And so that's a question my wife often asks herself. Why does Corey do the things that he does? But uh, that's not really what I'm talking about uh, right now. Why do we do the things that we do when it comes to serving the Lord? When it comes to serving God? Last week for our uh, fusion training session, um, that was the theme I went with and was really wrestling with it during the week. Like, what are our motives? Because if our motives are wrong, uh, people can get hurt. If the reason we do things for God are more self-centered and not focused on God, it's, it can cause trouble. I've shared with the choirs before they go on tour, I, I've shared with the with all of them, that I often get very nervous when I preach, and I, I usually don't sleep through the night before, and then I get very, very nauseous. And uh, uh, Coach Marshall was telling me that uh, a former Celtic basketball player, one of the greats, I think it was Bill Russell, used to throw up before every game. And I thought, well, I guess I'm in good company then, uh, NBA Hall of Famer. I don't throw up, but uh, I get nervous. And if I'm honest with myself, I'd have to say that part of that is self-centeredness. And if I'm going to be honest with you, worried, how will I come across? What will it look like? What will they think of me? Are they going to think it's a good sermon or bad sermon? Is the theology sound? Is, it biblical? is the biblical after Jesus sound? And all of a sudden get so nervous and so worked up that I can very easily get more focused on how I am going to come across than will the Word of God come across. Now, I think the other reason why I get nervous I think the other reason why I don't always sleep through the night before I preach, and this was even before I came here, even as a pastor, I, I recognize the fact, and this is what I want the choirs to know and those who lead in worship through song, that none of us are worthy to stand before people and proclaim the Word of God, whether in song or in preaching a sermon. None of us are worthy. Only, it is only through the power of God and the Holy Spirit in us that makes us worthy. So I know that that's part of it as well. And what about when we sing in, in, uh, in our chapel teams or in our choirs? And it, it can be very stirring and very moving and, and the power of God can really work through it, but I think that it can very easily become more about us and how we sound and how we perform than it is are we helping people and directing them to God. So I've questioned a lot about what are our motives. Even in our giving. Sometimes we can give and it's really more about us and letting people see that we give than it is about giving. Now, it's ironic that I'm making that statement when I publicly gave here on Wednesday into the fusion uh, immersion into the Wollaston Beach Fund. And even that morning for the Ash Wednesday text, it was, don't let anyone see your giving in public. And there I'm doing it. I mean, I just obviously wasn't even listening to the Word of God that day. But I really didn't want to go swimming in that water. <laughs> and I want to thank you all for giving. And uh, the girls received more money, so they were the ones that had to go swimming. So praise God for all of that. But uh, the team decided we should do this as a team. It's a theological response. I decided I should enter the water with them. Uh, Christ calls us to enter into people's suffering. And I thought, well, if they're going to enter the water, then I need to enter into the suffering with them. And I'm not kidding. After I went down and swallowed like a gallon of freezing cold salt water, I came up and thought, this is stupid. <laughs> and I got a little scared trying to walk out because all of a sudden my body wasn't moving the right way and I thought my arms weren't moving I thought if I fall over right now my arms won't be strong enough to pick me back up but I did survive and uh, thank you for your prayers so even in our giving sometimes it can appear as if we're doing it 
more for ourselves than giving it to a cause or for a reason or for a purpose or for God. And so on Monday, I started just reading through the Gospels and looking through Scripture, saying, Lord... Because often I start with a text and then, the, and then a message will come. But here was a little different. It doesn't always happen when I start with a topic and then go to the text. But, and that happened today. And I want you to turn to Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. Actually, I'll probably read to 14. Luke chapter 14, verses 7 to 14. And as you turn there, I want you to keep in mind, Jesus has just healed a man on the Sabbath. And some religious leaders of the day and some lawyers and some guests that he was about to have a meal with were questioning, why are you healing on the Sabbath? Why are you working on the Sabbath? And, um, and uh, Jesus responds to that and, and tells them uh, uh, why he's healed them. And now the tables are turned as they go to this meal setting. The tables are turned because now Jesus is watching their behavior. And as Jesus watches their behavior, he gives this very unique parable that we even miss. We don't even realize it's a parable. It happens so quickly. We don't, it's not like a typical parable that you'd see in the other Gospels, but it is a parable. So Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to dinner were trying to sit near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. In some translations would say he, he said this parable. If you are invited to a wedding feast, don't always head for the best seat. What if someone more respected than you has also been invited? The host will say, let this person sit here instead. Then you will be embarrassed and will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Do this instead. Sit at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees, sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place than this for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For the proud will be humbled, but the humble will be honored. On to verse 14. Then he turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or dinner, he said, Don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will repay you by inviting you back. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then, at the resurrection of the godly, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Heavenly Father, your word has been spoken. By the power of your Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts and lives that we might be forever changed. Let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. A meal setting, an ancient meal setting, and I've given this text as a devotional, I, I know, to some groups. As an ancient meal setting, a table will be set in the shape of a U. And the head of the table would sit at the base of the U, and the most honored guest would be at the left or the right of the host. So this was the, these were the seats that these Pharisees and lawyers, these are the seats they wanted. The closer to the host the more power, the more recognition, the more prestige you receive. In those at the end of the table, at the bottom portion of the U, if you will, they were the lowest. They were the least respected among that group of people, whoever was gathering for a meal that day. So though we may not have the same meal customs today in our own homes, we still have places at the table. Maybe your uh, father or mother sit at the head of the table and then the kids are all there. Or even at a Thanksgiving meal setting, we have this... Uh, we see this all the time for you have the big Thanksgiving meal and maybe uh, grandpa or grandma or a, a family member or a guardian or at the head of the table and then uh, aunts and uncles or your mom or dad, brothers and sisters, they're all at the table. And then there is the dreaded children's table. Look, some of you attend the children's I've seen some of you sit at the children's table. Now it's okay uh, if some of you sit at the children's table for the children's table is for the children and the unwelcome relatives. So, 
it's okay for you to chuckle to say, yeah, I sit at the children's table. It's a little more nerve-wracking when I look over to see some of the faculty and, and they have that look on their face, hey, my relatives still make me sit at the children's table. <laughs> that, that's, that's a concern. But that is the lowest place. So we, we have this understanding. So they're saying, I don't want to sit at the children's table. Come on. I mean, I'm a respected member of this family. And so I thought. Um, I used to think that until my in-laws sent me to the children's table, but that's a different story that I'm working through right now in counseling. I think that we desire these positions for power and recognition, um, even within our churches. And that destroys the church. It destroys it. We think we have the right idea of the way the church should run. We have the right agenda. God has given us the vision. It'd be nice if he gave the board the vision, but he hasn't, so he's given me the vision, so I need to push my agenda on the way the church should live. That type of mindset and attitude destroys us. Destroys the church. But it doesn't just happen in churches, it happens in friendships. Where there are some friends who want to be the more controlling one. The one that decides what the friendship looks like. Or even in dating relationships, or even marriages. And we won't get into marriages now, but we do see it in dating relationships, don't we? There's, there's this maneuvering for power and control. And that destroys relationships. We see this in all aspects of our worship, in our home life, in our family life. And Jesus stands there and says, This is not of the kingdom of God. Don't head for the places of power. Don't seek recognition. Don't seek honor. In fact, what I want you to do is take the lowest place. I want you to go to the foot of the table. I want you to be a servant. I want you to sit at the children's table. That's what we as Christians are to do. We take the lowest place, which was often the place of the servant. The one who would serve the others. The ones who would put others first, whether they are family members or friends or homeless or they're crippled. Jesus is saying... Part of God's kingdom is taking the lowest place. And that is, we, that is what we as Christians are to do and to be, to take the lowest place and to be servant to all. And immediately think, well, wait a minute, you don't know. You don't know my family. You don't know my situation, my circumstance. You're right, I don't. And this can become a situation where people abuse and take advantage of you. And some of you can commit to too much. Right. You know, your classes are a priority right now. And if something is coming in between that, you know that God has called you to be a student right now, so that must be a priority for you. But there are situations where we can do better, I think. I think there are situations and circumstances and relationships where we can be more like Christ and be willing to take the lowest place. Because, you see, before Jesus went to the cross, He took the lowest place at another table, at the Last Supper. And He knelt before His disciples and washed their feet and demonstrated for them and for you and for me that this is what a follower of Christ should be and do and look like, taking the lowest place and being a servant to all. But do we do that? What are our motives? Is that really what we're doing? In the previous chapter, in Luke chapter 13, there is what's called the kingdom parables. And in the kingdom parables, it concludes by Jesus saying, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. The last shall be first. Take the lowest place. The last shall be first. And the first shall be last. And what he's referring to is the kingdom of God. He's not talking about here on earth. He's saying, take the lowest place because that is what God's kingdom is all about. And then when you enter into my kingdom, you will be first among all. You will be welcome there. It's an economy of God's kingdom. The last shall be first. Now, I preached at Gordon College, you know, two weeks ago. And I took a chapel team. 
and I preached from a, a completely different text, but as I, I stood up to preach, um, I said, I you know, want to thank you for worshiping with you, thank you to the chaplain, and I want to thank uh, Gordon College for helping us at Eastern Nazarene College these last few years uh, in our spiritual journey. Uh, because, not always, not this year, but there have been some years where the athletic teams from Gordon College have routinely beat us in sports. Not this year, I understand. And I wanted to thank them. I said, so thank you for letting us have the last place. Because in the kingdom of God, the last shall be first. So you can, you can fill your trophy cases here on earth where Rostin Muffs, Ma, Rostin Muff, Rostin Muffs will uh, eat away at them. We choose to go by God's kingdom. So thank you for helping us in our spiritual journey. And to our current teams, don't hesitate to help Gordon in their spiritual journey. Uh, let them be last. It's okay. Uh, and Jesus is also talking about the last shall be first in its future tense. Once we enter the kingdom of God, then we shall be first. Take the lowest place. And so what Jesus is calling us to is to follow his example. It's an issue he continually returns to, like I said, even at the Last Supper, where he takes the lowest place, the place of a servant, and even washes the feet of the one who will betray him. For he knew Judas was going to betray him, and he still washed his feet. We're called to have this Christ-like servanthood, this Christ-like humility. So I keep asking, what are our motives all about? Do we really have this desire to serve like or are we in it for our own desires, agendas? Do we uh, just want to be up before people and, and preach or, or lead in worship? Or do we really want God to, to work through us in that time as we seek to serve Him through song or through spoken word? Our hidden agendas, our hidden motives, you know, they can be so deep that we don't even see them. They can be so deep that they're even hidden from us. We've hid them so well. That's one of the great things about this Lenten season. If you're bold enough, I, I dare you and challenge you to pray, Lord, reveal those things to me that are not of you. Reveal those things to me that are of my motives and not of your motives. Reveal those things to me like I have confessed here today that sometimes I get caught up and get nervous more of how I will appear and sound and not how will you come across in what is proclaimed. Our hidden agendas and motives can be so deep. Richard Baxter in his classic book, The Reformed Pastor, writes about pride. Listen to what he says. Are you puffed up with pride? Do you welcome the praise of others? Do you seek the highest honors? Do you become angry when your word or your will is crossed? Can you not serve God in a low place as well as a high place? Do you enjoy celebrity? Are you unaware of the deceitfulness and wickedness of your heart? Are you more ready to defend your innocence than to confess your faults? If these things describe your heart, you are a proud person. It is not likely you have any familiarity with God. You too much make yourself a God. You are your own idol. How could you possibly have your heart in heaven? You might speak a few proper words, but your heart does not understand what you are saying. Pride can run deep. It can run so deep it, it takes a lifetime sometimes, it seems, to, to surrender it all to the Lord. So what are your motives? 
Is it more about your agenda, your political or social view, your theology, your belief about worship, your belief about preaching, your belief the way the church should run or the school should run or how your classes should be or how your family should treat? Is it more about that or is it more, God, whatever you want in me and through me, do it. I want to follow the life of Jesus. I want to follow the example of Jesus and be a servant to all. I know it's a scary prayer. I know it's a bold prayer. But there is good news here today. You see, the grace of God that we sang about today is still amazing. And it's not just the saving grace of God, it's the transforming grace of God that is also amazing. And that if we are willing to completely surrender our hearts and lives to Him, there is this transforming grace that is shaped and moved within us, and and we can change. It's not only a forgiving grace, it's a transforming grace. So maybe many of you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, but have you surrendered to Him as Lord? There is a difference. You have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your heart. You've asked for forgiveness of sins and Jesus is in your heart and life. But have you surrendered to Him as Lord and say, Lord, whatever you want for my life, whatever you want for my relationships, whatever you want for my career, I am yours. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Have you done that? You've accepted Him as Savior, but have you surrendered to Him as Lord? It is a daily surrender I've discovered, sometimes moment by moment, saying, Lord, not my will, but Yours. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. It's not about us. It's about the power of Christ working within us. And daily, moment by moment, surrendering to the Lord above. So what are your motives? What are your motives in your relationships? In your friendships? What are your motives among your family members? What are your motives among your church? Are they of God? And and they very well may be. The motives in the places you worship and serve. I've wrestled with this because after 9-11, I was a little troubled living in New York and growing up in New York, um, waiting to hear friends from high school were down at uh, Ground Zero. And all these people and journalists and Christian magazines were coming in and writing these articles, and they'd come in for a day or two and write this very moving article and very moving journal, and it would get published, and it was very deep and very moving, and then they'd leave town. And it felt like, when I read some of those, that we were being taken advantage of. It felt like maybe people weren't being malicious, but it was more about them writing an article or a periodical or whatever it may be, and it really wasn't about entering into the need and the pain and the sorrow of the people of New York after 9-11. And so as we had this prayer service for Haiti, I kept checking myself and wrestling, Lord, please let this be a genuine, beautiful response from this community, not something about just the emotional stir of the day where there'll be these concerts on TV and we'll give and then forget about it. May this be something where we, we stay with the conversation. May we, may we not forget about it when the news is done. When, when the cameras have left, may we, may we stay with this conversation, Lord God. May we not take advantage or exploit another people in the midst of their pain and think, we have all the answers, here we come, aren't you glad we're here, we can help you, we can save you. If that is our attitude, that is not of Christ, because it is more about us and not about serving the Lord and allowing Him to work through us. So what are your motives? The good news today is that God's grace is still amazing. If there is any part of your life where you are still in control, I would encourage you to surrender that to the Lord and let Him have full control of your life. And be a servant the same way that Jesus demonstrated servanthood to us. At the table, the Last Supper, washing the disciples' feet, and on the cross where He gave His life for you and for me. Are you willing to give your life for others? 
in the same way that Christ gave his life for you. Please stand. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this beautiful and wonderful community that you have blessed me and given me a privilege and my family to be a part of. We are richly blessed, and I, uh, words are inadequate to express my thanks. I think Mr. Diamond expressed it best when he spoke in, on Wednesday when he said, uh, I owe a debt uh, to ENC and to God that I can never possibly repay. May we have that as our spirit, that we owe a debt to you, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We owe a debt to God, our Father, that we can never repay. But may our lives be completely surrendered to you and be a servant the way you modeled, the way you demonstrated, and the way you've given your life for us. May we give our lives for others, not for our glory, but simply for yours. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed. Go in peace. Have a great weekend.